Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of themes that well up in our gospel lesson today, and one of them is identity. Who is this Jewish rabbi, and who is this Samaritan woman? As you can see from the text, their ethnic or racial identity is significant. She even says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, you'll recall, to give some context to this, you'll recall that way back in the history of God's people, Israel asked for a king, and they were given a king, Saul, and then David succeeded him, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam. And in the reign of Rehoboam, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Israel, just to make things more confusing, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. The northern kingdom established their own temple, which was at Mount Gerizim, and that comes up in our uh, lesson today. Um, They didn't want to compete with Jerusalem. They wanted their own temple in their own land, so they set one up at Mount Gerizim. Um, They also taught that Mount Gerizim was the was the place where Abraham um, went to sacrifice Isaac. And, of course, the southern kingdom, Judah, taught, no, no, that's on Mount Zion. Um, Of course, that was, um, it's many years later, in 722 B.C., that the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom. They did not conquer the southern kingdom. But the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And the Assyrians had this practice of exporting people from a territory that they conquered and sending them off somewhere else. And then they'd take people from another territory and import them into the one area. And they had this way of mixing everyone up. And it prevented uh, rebellions from rising up because it sort of broke down groups that were otherwise cohesive. You know, it would break them apart. So as a result, the northern kingdom, the area, the land of the northern kingdom, which is where Samaria is, became a a sort of mixed group of people. They weren't pure Jews, and that's the issue that we come up to. Now, there's also um, a history of receiving false gods in in the northern kingdom. So that is an issue also. But the bottom line is Jews in in Jesus' day, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as being a sort of half-breed. I hate to use that term. It could be offensive, but that's, it is offensive. I mean, and it was offensive. That's how they viewed them. Um, But this is important in understanding this exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So what's going on in the text? The Samaritan woman is at the well in the middle of the day. That's what the sixth hour would be about noon. You know, women typically went in the morning or in the evening. They wouldn't go out in the middle of the day when it's hot. The well is about 100 feet deep, 105 feet deep, they say. So, so you got a lower, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not like you just go in and dip a, a jug in. It's, it's a process to draw water out of the well. So you wouldn't go in the middle of the day. So why is she there in the middle of the day? 
There's, there's a reason. Something's going on. <clears throat> Jesus asked her to serve him. Notice that. He didn't just make conversation. He asked for her service. Give me a drink. And she was surprised that he would even speak to her because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. But let alone ask her for a drink of water. And she made her surprise known to him. But listen to his response. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She is a Samaritan and he is a Jew. And that's all she has seen. And that's all she still seems to see at this point. She doesn't see who Jesus is. Because she answers him, you don't have anything to draw water. And the well is deep. How would you give me living water? And how about this question? Are you greater than our father Jacob? It was Jacob who dug the well. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, yes, Jesus Christ is greater than your father Jacob. That's rather the point. But she's not quite understanding that yet at this point in time. And Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. These are indeed bold words of promise that within her would be a well of water. But she's still not quite getting it. She thought that the water would satisfy her temporal thirst, her bodily thirst for water. She wanted that because it means that she wouldn't have to come to the, wa- to the well again to draw water. Now, she, again, she's there at midday. Why is she there at midday? Well, she's ashamed of who she is. She's probably gossiped about. So she comes at the, in the morning with the other women, and she suffers their scorn. She comes in the evening with the other women, and she suffers their scorn. So she doesn't want to have to come back to the well again. So give me that water, that living water, that I don't have to come down to the well and draw water anymore. She's still not quite getting it, though. Jesus is offering living water to a Samaritan woman, a half-breed. That's the way they looked at them. And as a, a woman that suffers public shame so that she's there in the middle of the day. This is the person that Jesus has come to. Go and call your husband, he says. Call your husband and come here if you want that living water. And what do you think that Jesus meant when he said, come here? To the well? Is that the place where you get living water? Or come to the place where I am? Because I'm the one who gives the living water. I don't need a bucket and a long rope so I can draw it out of the well. The well is the place where Jesus is. And now Jesus proceeds to tell her that he knows her marital situation. If you read on in the story, she says, come and see the prophet who told me everything about my life. Oh, he knows everything. Five husbands. Now she's with someone that's not even her husband. 
Interestingly, a side note here, her multiple husbands and her current adultery are also a reflection of Samaria and their past history and their syncretistic practices because they did syncretize worship of the true God with worship of false idols and they brought them in. And how often does God refer to their idolatry as whoring around with false idols? I mean, he doesn't mince words. <laughs> so her, her very, her own personal history is in itself, in a nutshell, the people of Samaria. But Jesus isn't casting her off. He's coming to her. He has come to her. He didn't kick her to the curb. With this intimate knowledge of the woman, um, she understood two things at this point. One is that Jesus was a prophet. So she sees that. Okay, I perceive that you're a prophet. She knows he's a prophet. And she also sees that her sins have been uncovered. Now, when your sin is uncovered, naturally, you want to cover it back up. No, no, I don't want you to see my sin. Let me cover that back up. Or even better is have it just taken away. Just take, take my sin away from me. Well, what are we talking about when we remove sin? We're talking about absolution. That is what she is looking for. And you can tell because of her question. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim, but you say, you being the Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place for worship. What she's saying is, I perceive you're a prophet. My sins are now bare before you, and I need absolution. Do I need to go here in Mount Gerizim, or do I need to go there to Jerusalem? Where do I receive absolution? Where do my sins get covered over? Where am I to be forgiven of my sins? She's not resolving a theological dispute about which is the correct mountain. Because the answer, of course, is neither of them are the correct mountain. Well, some people might take issue with that. The issue is that, as Jesus says, that the time is coming where it's not about which mountain. Think about... Um, uh, when Jesus asked his disciples if they wanted to turn back. You know, he said, look, the road ahead is pretty rough. Do you want to turn back? And Simon Peter is the one who answered, as we sing in our verse for Lent, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah, where else are we going to go? But that's the same question. Where else would we go, Lord, but to you? And the Samaritan woman is asking the right question. Which mountain do I need to go to? And she's asking the right person because it's Jesus. And he gives her an answer. The hour is coming and is now here. See, believers don't worship at Mount Gerizim or at Jerusalem. They don't worship at the temple. They don't worship what they don't know. Believers worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believers look upon the cross, the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, who suffered and died for their sins. 
It's not a geographic place. It's not a prescribed ritual that worships God. But it is God's spirit working, working faith in the heart of all believers that they look upon Jesus Christ, God the Son, and they give thanks to God the Father. And this is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. We don't go to Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. The cross of Jesus Christ is where we go to find absolution. You want to find where to cover your sins? You go to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we go. Now, we talk a lot about the mirror of God's law, and rightly so, okay? Because our sinful nature prevents us from seeing our own sin. So we talk about how God's law is like a mirror that helps us see ourselves rightly, and we see our sin condition. It reveals our sinful condition. But Jesus here is talking about living water that wells up within you. This is what he provides. And in this living water, which is the gospel, we see a mirror, the mirror of the gospel, which is how you see yourself rightly as God sees you. This is this image of living water is astounding because everything in their faith was about God coming externally to them. But here, Jesus says, I put living water in, I give you living water that wells up inside of you to eternal life, to the end of the ages is is really the right way to understand that. This living water goes to the end of the ages and it's happening within you. The gift of the Holy Spirit making the temple inside of you. So when you see yourself in the mirror of the gospel, that's how you should see yourself. Not that there's anything that you boast of on your own as though you're something special in and of yourself, but that God has given you his Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is inside of you like a living well of water that's welling up. I mean, this is what is actually happening inside each one of you. And see that reality that in God, uh, that God in Christ Jesus has given you this living water through his gifts of word and sacrament. He gives you living water. And your faith that comes from God, a gift from God, causes you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. Self-sacrificial things, giving of yourselves, loving others, loving people that are unlovable, kind of like we're unlovable sometimes. We're all, all of us can, can say that. Paul says, as we heard in the lesson from this morning from the epistle lesson, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were perfect, godly little angels. It's while we were sinners that he died for us. And we show that same love toward others. 
Now I'm almost finished, but I want to go back to this theme of identity. Who are you? A sinner? A Samaritan? A stranger? You you are all saints. You're holy ones. God has made you holy ones. He has planted in you living water. That's your identity. When you look in the mirror of the gospel, you see that identity. I'm God's saint. Saint and sinner, simultaneously, yes. But I'm God's saint. And the well that is in me is welling up to eternal life. And that eternal life that's in me, it goes around with me everywhere I go. As I'm walking down the street and waving to my neighbors and mowing the grass and at work, wherever you are, you're taking that with you because that's part of who you are. That's your identity. Whatever else in life you may be, that is your identity in Christ, is a sainted one with a well of water inside of you that wells up to eternal life. Doing things naturally without thinking about it even all the time, but just doing things for others because we've been set free to do that. Whatever identity life assigns to you, just hang on to this identity above all else. This is your true identity because that is who you are in Christ Jesus. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.